Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. Bit of an update. Oh, what's that? You know, last week I was joking about your illness and questioning if you had bubonic plague. Yeah, and just be clear, I didn't have it, by the way. I had a very weak cold and I'm fine now. But so what's happened? That shepherd with the plague in, in Mongolia, don't tell me he's died or something. No, it seems like he's fine. But in an unrelated case in Western Mongolia, a 15-year-old has died of bubonic plague. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, I know. Awful, eh? And a squirrel has tested positive for bubonic plague in Colorado. What? Yep, yeah, I know. Sounds silly. But a bunch of squirrels started dying in one town, so they tested for the bubonic plague bacteria. It's not very common. It's easy to treat. But health officials do like to keep an eye out for it. All right. Anyway, hearty my welcome. This is Coronavirus NZ for Thursday the 16th of July. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham, Tina Koto. Once a week we bring you the news and some of the quirky things we've noticed about this global pandemic, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic. I just realised this is episode 51. We probably should have done something to market last week when it was a nice round 50, but we didn't. Awkward, but actually we had a party to celebrate, but you were on holiday so I didn't mention it. What? Anyway, how was your holiday? Brilliant. Thank you, mate. Mostly because unlike the previous 20 days leave, I took some time off because I actually wanted to, rather than using up all my annual leave at the request of my financially stressed employer. And it's school holidays. But yeah, we hired a place in Coromandel for a few days, mooched around, reading, walking, eating too much, you know. Oh, 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 oh. while you were scoffing too much at Coromandel eateries, did you use the government tracing app to scan yourself in by any chance? Mm -hmm. To be honest, I can only think of one place... Where I even saw the QR code, not that I was really looking for it. And and even then, no, I didn't scan in. It uh, probably should have, I guess, but it somehow feels hard to take it seriously now. Yeah, it's really losing steam, isn't it? This week, we've had the health minister, Chris Hipkins, and Ashley Bloomfield on a PR offensive, trying to encourage people to use it. But you just get the feeling people are really questioning how useful it is. I was curious about how or whether it was used during the scare when that guy escaped from isolation in central Auckland and went to the countdown. A good question, because surely something like that, that's the moment for the app to shine. You would think so. But let me guess. I guess you are guessing correctly. Not only do the privacy limitations in the app mean the ministry has no idea how many people scanned into the supermarket at the time, but it turns out officials didn't use the app to trace anyone who was there at the same time. Anyway, I've written a story about all this and you can find it on the Stuff site. Look, I got off topic. We were talking about what you got up to on your holidays. Take any photos? Got a slideshow? Probably do, actually. Give, give me a minute. No, 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 no. Sorry, that wasn't an invitation. Oh, okay. Bit rude. But yeah, it was It was just good to get out of Auckland and to tune out a bit from the news for a few days. Though, to be honest, I did get sucked back in briefly by the excitement of the resignation of the opposition leader and the appointment of a new one. And also, though I really tried not to, I did keep getting drawn into reading stuff about the absolute mind-melting catastrophe that is America's response to COVID-19. I'm not going to go on too much about the insane way in which every aspect of the health response gets twisted and dragged into America's culture wars. But I did want to mention just the latest little twist, which is that it's recently become clear that Trump's White House have decided to wage a kind of propaganda war against Anthony Fauci. That's America's Ashley Bloomfield. Essentially because Fauci's belief in science keeps butting up against Trump's belief in himself. So that means America's pandemic top dog the guy who led the response against AIDS and Ebola hasn't talked to the president in 
five weeks. He's been denied a White House platform to communicate health messages to the public. And now Trump's team have been leaking anonymous memos dissing Fauci to various media outlets. They're basically treating Fauci like he's an opposing politician to undermine and subvert and discredit, rather than the guy leading the public health response to the worst health crisis to hit the United States in a century. If this dysfunction at the top of American politics wasn't so phenomenally lethal, you know, they're up to 140,000 deaths now. It would almost be funny, but, but it's, it's really not funny at all. I was thinking, though, about the various ways that things can go when politics and science intersect. Do you remember that time in New Zealand when a health minister said something that was actually basically true, but was a little bit mean, about our Director General of Health over glitches in our border quarantine, and half the country was outraged, and the minister lost his job not long after. New Zealand and the US really feel like they're operating in two totally separate universes at the moment. It's not 100% horror from the US, though. Later in the show, we're going to hear from a Kiwi who's been living in New York City through the entire crisis. Things got really bad there, but after a really tough lockdown and a lot of death, things are starting to look a little bit better. So, Adam, while you've been gallivanting around on holiday, reading trashy novels and stuff like I imagine you do, I got to reading myself, and I saved you some homework too. Mm, What homework? Well, it seemed that a lot has been happening lately in the science world, and there's been some really interesting work published, actually. It was about time we caught up on a few developments, so this next bit is going to be a bit of a science catch-up. I've ingested and digested a half dozen bits of boffinry, and now we'll race through them. And because I'm nice, I'll let you read out half of them and pretend you know what you're talking about. Excellent. I do love a good medical polysyllable or two. You do. Right, let's crack into it. First up, let's deal with something a bit grim, but important. Don't worry, we'll come to some more uplifting science soon. Excellent. This was a paper published in Nature. It's a peer-reviewed observational study of 17 million people in the UK. And it looked at the factors that make COVID-19 more likely to kill. Oof. So it looked at age, gender, ethnicity and underlying medical conditions to see how they affect your chances when it comes to surviving COVID. Men were worse off than women, a 1.59 fold higher risk. Being older is a bad idea. People aged over 80 had a 20 fold increased risk compared to people aged 50 to 59 years old. Pre-existing medical conditions like diabetes, severe asthma, chronic heart, liver, neurological and autoimmune diseases, they didn't help. And greater socioeconomic deprivation puts you at more risk too. The most deprived were 1.8 times more likely to die than the least deprived. Okay, this stuff sounds interesting, but don't we already know all this? You know, that COVID seems to be much more lethal in patients who are older or sicker or poorer or non-white. Yeah, sort of. But scientists commenting on the results have pointed out that 17 million is a truly vast data set. So the results give us a much more precise insight into what's going on. And because that data has come from national health records in the UK, it included information on perfectly healthy people, not just people who turned up in hospital with COVID-19. But there's one particular detail that didn't seem familiar to me. The data shows that poor people are more likely to die from COVID, sure. But the thing that's curious is that it's not just because poor people are sicker. In other words, those two factors of poverty and pre-existing conditions don't seem to be strongly linked which means it's something else that's causing poorer people to die faster. 
So I guess that could be things like housing density, bad access to healthcare, or even systemic racism in the healthcare system. That research feels kind of connected to another paper, a study out of Wuhan in China, which found that patients with high blood sugar, even those who haven't been diagnosed with diabetes, are at an increased risk of dying. Double the risk, in fact. And they're also more likely to suffer severe complications. So the authors of this paper studied 605 patients who'd been admitted to two hospitals in Wuhan in January and February. They said the reasons for the worst outcomes might include the way that higher blood sugar levels affect blood clotting, or the function of the walls of blood vessels, or immune system responses. Or, to put it polysyllabically, the issue could be hyperglycemia-induced changes in coagulation, worsening of endothelial function, and overproduction of inflammatory cytokines. I love it when you talk medical. All right then, what about this one? Broken heart syndrome. You have made that up. No, it's a thing. And it's been more common during the pandemic. Its proper name is stress cardiomyopathy, where... Intense emotional or physical stress causes rapid and severe heart muscle weakness. Okay, I believe you now because you dropped cardiomyopathy in there. Yeah, exactly. So during the pandemic, a study in the US found that more people turning up to hospital with heart problems had broken heart syndrome and that the psychological, social and economic impact of the pandemic is likely to blame rather than the actual virus itself. Fascinating. But Adam, I have an important question for you. One that was presciently asked by Jimmy Ruffin in 1966. What becomes of the broken-hearted? Good question, badly sung. In fact, Oi. <laughs> in fact, so good <laughs> that it was asked again by Diana Ross in the Supremes that same year, by Dave Stewart in 1980, by Boy George in 1988, by Joe Cocker in 1998, and of course, your favourite, by Boyzone in 2014. And it's odd that it's been asked so often, because if they just Googled it like I did a minute ago, they'd have the answer. It turns out that while it can be quite serious, broken heart syndrome is generally a temporary condition, and most people recover fully within weeks. Good to know. I'm not going to sing the boy's own version. And that kind of brings us nicely to our next big bit of research. Scientists led by an Australian team conducted the first comprehensive study into the impacts COVID-19 is having on people and the planet. So they're looking at the economy, the environment, jobs, climate change, big stuff, pulling together figures from all over the world. And they found that consumption losses, people buying less stuff, have amounted to more than US $3.8 trillion worth. And that's been responsible for the loss of 147 million jobs. Incomes have taken a US $2.1 trillion hit. On the upside, though, it also brought about the biggest ever drop in greenhouse gas emissions, 4.6%, the largest in human history. Okay, enough of the big picture. There's also some really cool stuff being learned at the microscopic level, some of it in New Zealand. So there's some Otago researchers who have built on their previous expertise in immune cells that fight off cancer, and they reckon they've identified some potential weak spots in the coronavirus's genome. So these weak spots are apparently target sites recognised by something called host microRNA, a nucleic acid-based immune system operating in all of our body cells. I don't entirely know what that means, but the exciting bit is that this could be very handy when it comes to developing vaccines. Yeah, and vaccine research is something we're all very interested in. Australian researchers have just published some work on the way that human immune cells, B cells and T cells, respond to those protein spikes that stick out from the surface of the coronavirus. Looks like people who come through COVID-19 with only mild symptoms tend to have had an especially grunty B-cell response. 
Again, it's information that could be really helpful when it comes to running vaccine trials. And still on immunity, there's a paper out of the UK this week which suggests the body's natural antibody response to COVID-19 declines after 20 to 30 days. They collected samples from 65 COVID-19 patients up to 94 days after they started showing symptoms, as well as 31 healthcare workers who had antibody tests. Now, this is super interesting because that's something virologists have been saying since day one, isn't it? That sure, it's very likely that people who have had COVID-19 will have some sort of lasting immunity because that's often how it goes with viral infections. But we simply don't know how strong that immunity will be or how long it will last. And it's research like this paper, which is starting to provide answers. But it's also really important to note that this particular paper has its limitations. It's a small sample and the work hasn't been peer reviewed yet. All the same, Other scientists who reacted to the paper said it's the kind of information that people who work on vaccines really need to take into account as they're making their plans. Mm. And last but not least, my fascination with bats and pangolins and the crossover event which started this whole shebang is served by a paper published last week. So some scientists have been taking a really close look at those spike proteins and in particular comparing the SARS-CoV-2 virus with the bat virus, which is most closely related, a virus called R-A-T-G-13. R-A-T. When I was at school, those letters spelt the word rat. Ah, yeah, you're right. But it's a bat virus, trust me. Okay. So anyway, these scientists were wondering, how are these two viruses similar and how are they different? And they found that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the, the human one, the spikes on that are more stable and they can bind to human cells 1,000 times more tightly. So what this means, they think, is that the bat virus on its own wouldn't be able to infect human cells since it would struggle to attach. So this is really just another piece of evidence to back that early theory that the evolution of the COVID-19 virus must have involved recombination of the bat virus with another different coronavirus. Other scientists who've read the study said it fills in some important gaps in the COVID-19 puzzle. That's a good thing. No, your enemy and all that, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, on with the show. Wait, 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 hang on. You said there was going to be some upbeat, uplifting science. There was. Scientists know heaps more stuff about this awful virus. Ta-da! <sighs> Just a quick hack tip and thanks to the folks at the Science Media Centre in New Zealand and Australia. They send out these magnificent updates that are really helpful when you're trying to keep on top of these giant stories. I second that. Right, on with the show, for real this time. Today our guest is Amy Maas, a former stuff journalist who moved to New York for a new job last year. Six months into making a new life for herself in the Big Apple, coronavirus bit hard. New York became an epicentre for the disease. Things are getting better now, but in total, New York State has had more than 400,000 cases and 32,000 deaths. At its peak in April, it was reporting more than 10,000 new cases a day. So what was it like to live through that? Amy worked and lived in the heart of the city throughout, and she joins us to tell us about those horrible months and what the future holds. Hi, Amy. Hi. Hey, just before we get started, I don't think we can let this pass. Am I in the presence of two international award-winning podcasters today, Amy and Adam, co-hosts of hit podcast Gone Fishing? Yes, yes, Eugene, hush now. We're here to interview Amy about life in New York. (laughs) Though, actually, seeing you mention it, the Gone Fishing podcast is still available on iTunes, Spotify, and all popular podcast platforms. Anyway, Amy, you've been living in New York since July last year, so... I guess you were just getting to know the Big Apple before it started shutting down, but what do you miss about pre-COVID New York? 
I think the big thing that I miss is being able to finish work and just, you know, sitting inside a pub with my friends or going out for dinner or waking up on a Saturday or Sunday morning and going to the gym and going for brunch and just basically having anything you want to do, like right at your fingertips. Um, If you feel like going to a museum, you can do that. If you feel like going to a show, you can do that. So the options are pretty limited at the moment. Looking back, you know, right to the beginning, was there there a moment when you realised, a particular day when you realised, ah, this is going to be serious, things are not good, things are not going to be the same? Yeah, well, there were a few days where, you know, it really started to sink in. And I think the first day that it became quite apparent was around... um, probably mid to late February. It was about a week before we were told that, you know, we should now work at home. Um, And I was walking home from the supermarket on a Saturday and I was carrying my shopping bags and I just had like this really awful pit in my stomach. And I just realized, you know, everything's going to change. All these people are not going to be here. I don't know if I'm going to get sick I just have no idea what's going to happen. And yeah, I was pretty terrified. And then the next day, my friend and I, we we used to do this um, exercise class on a Sunday and we went and we did that. And then we went and had some food, some drinks after that. And it became pretty clear then that people were starting to clear out. There was hardly anyone around. And that was the day before we basically got the order that, you know, we have to stay home now. Mm. I remember it being really, really cold one Sunday and I went, I was walking with a friend, like we always do this little walk around Central Park and we were walking down, there were no cars anywhere. We were walking down Madison Avenue, all the shops were being boarded up, all the merchandise was being taken out. We couldn't get a coffee anywhere. And we were freezing. And that was very scary. Like, I don't think I'll forget that day. It was, that's also when it really, really hit home. There was no one on the streets. There's something you wrote in an email as we were setting this conversation up that you can't even remember a lot of the past few months because it's almost like a kind of PTSD has set in. What what did you mean by that? Well, I was kind of half joking, but probably not. I mean, I try and think of like a single day or something and I can't really pinpoint specific things during that time because I think you just kind of wipe it from your memory. Mm. Just or, or maybe it just blends into one. I'm not sure what it is. You know, even the thought of having to go back down into lockdown again is quite a scary prospect. Like we're seeing places like California, um, Florida being locked down again. And, you know, and I think it's a very real prospect that, you know, if we don't continue what we're doing now, we could just become the epicenter again. The first case reported in New York was on the 1st of March. The first death was on March the 14th. By April the 10th, apparently there were more confirmed cases in New York than in any country outside the US. Yeah. Then by April and May, the lockdowns were, were, were getting really full on. Now, New York's obviously a city that survived some tough times. What's the mood been during the various levels of lockdown around the city? Well, it's hard to tell because there wasn't really anyone to bounce that off. Um, I mean, when I say it was deserted, I mean it was deserted. There was no one around. You're talking to your colleagues and stuff, but no one's really going outside. No one's really interacting with anyone, or at least during those first few weeks. I guess the thing is, as well, you know, 
when cases started rising at a very rapid rate, we started seeing the death rate go up as well. So we would have some days, like I think the peak was around mid-April, where we had nearly 900 people die every single day. Mm-hmm. And that was terrifying. You have to do a few things for your mental health. And my one thing was I would always just go for really, really long walks. Um, and I'd walk around, you know, down past the East River. I'd go down to Times Square, which is really weird when there's no one there, but all the billboards are going. <laughs> it's quite an experience. But you'd walk around, but, you know, you're also constantly walking past hospitals. And there's all these huge refrigerated trucks standing outside. And you know that those trucks are filled with bodies being piled on top of each other. Good Lord. It wasn't very nice. Yeah. I mean, when you see something like that, you just, you feel afraid. And I think people were very scared for themselves, but also scared for their friends and family. And, you know, obviously a lot of people, you know, did lose friends and family here. As a new arrival, you don't have family networks in New York, though you have friends, but do you know people who've had COVID or even worse, uh, know of anyone who's died? I know people who have been infected with it. Nothing terrible has happened to them, but a close friend of mine, um, he's a musician and his manager died. I think that was probably the closest like second degree connection. So some of the constraints are lifting in New York now. We wondered if you could sort of walk us through a picture of your daily routine, the things that you have to do because of this whole COVID-19 crisis. It's kind of weird because it just feels like a new normal now. So it's like you're constantly wearing your mask when you go outside. You have a lot of hand sanitizer. You avoid crowds. You avoid walking near anyone at all. And sometimes that's not always possible as the streets start becoming busier. But it's nowhere near the level that it was. I stopped taking the subway in about mid-February, maybe end of February, when I started getting a little bit nervous. And I took the subway for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And that was strange because there was no one on it. Mm. And the people that were on it were, you know, obviously everyone was quite distanced. Everyone was wearing a mask. If you catch a bus, it's the same thing. Uh, If you get a cab, you have to wear a mask. So my day-to-day is I leave the house because I'm going back to the office. So I cycle to work. It's a way of avoiding people. So I cycle, get there, a nurse takes your temperature, You have to wear a mask if you're in a common area. You're very spaced out at your desks. Um, There's only a very few of us. And then like socially, because we're currently in phase three, we were supposed to have indoor dining open, but because of all the cases rising down south, they've decided to postpone that. You can still dine outside though, all the tables are quite spaced out. Um, You can still have a few drinks, so... But everything's kind of on the streets. So you'll have like where the parking spots would be on the streets in New York. Like those have become restaurant areas. Mm. And um, there are spaces in, you know, the city where they've completely blocked off the streets for pedestrians. I guess one of the most social things I probably do is like go walk in the park with my friends or hang out in the park. When you meet your friends, are you making full contact or are you still distant? 
Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say we're making full full contact. It's not always possible to stay super distanced. And I would say that I would have probably a few friends where I feel comfortable being in their orbit and they feel comfortable being in mine because we know we're not doing anything strange or weird or, you know, seeing other people. And, like, the other thing is is that the infection rate in New York now is about 1% of all the people that are getting tested. And there are probably about 50,000 people getting tested every day. Only 1% are testing positive. So the infection rate is a lot lower than what it was. So you feel a lot more comfortable, but you still have to be very careful. This whole experience must have just been surreal. So have there been sites or experiences which have really stopped you in your tracks and, and brought things home for you? Yes, so I already touched on the deserted streets because that was very confronting. So, you know, completely deserted Times Square, seeing the entrance to Central Park on 59th Street across from the plaza, completely dead, Fifth Avenue, not a single soul. But also the other thing that was really confronting and terrifying was you'd be sitting at home working and there would just be a constant scream of sirens. So all the sirens here sound different. So your cop cars, your ambulance, and your fire trucks all sound different. And it's very easy to distinguish between them now. But it was relentless. It was constant, constant, constant. And mm. New York always has a lot of sirens going, but this was like something else. It was just the only thing you could hear at night. You know, there were heartwarming moments too. So at one point at 7pm, that everyone in the city would just kind of hang out of their windows and bang pots and pans and clap hmm. and, you know, sing New York, New York. And that was really nice. And that actually continued for a very long time. I think tonight was the first night that I didn't hear it. Yeah. So that was really nice. Wow, that is really nice. Watching the world from down here in New Zealand is a bit weird at times. It feels like we all went into lockdown together and then we, we came out of it, but the rest of the world just sort of stayed there. Have you ever considered coming back to New Zealand? No, I haven't considered going back to New Zealand because I feel like as a journalist, I've been quite privileged to be here. And even though I may have felt scared or uncertain about being here at times, it is a privileged position. You do get to work on this day to day and you do get to see it firsthand. So it might sound morbid, but I'm quite, you know, happy that I have experienced that as a journalist. It's made it interesting. I get that. You're sort of helping to tell this really important story. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been interesting in that regard. Some foreign media have been a bit obsessed with New Zealand's elimination strategy and with generally what's happened down here. When people find out you're a Kiwi, do they want to talk about New Zealand's response to COVID-19? Um, to be honest with you, I haven't met any new people lately, Eugene. <laughs> <laughs> he meant to say at all the cocktail parties that you're going to, when, you, when you're hanging out with um, all the famous, with Moby and all the famous people. <laughs> No, no, all those new people I've met have not asked me about it. But I think it might be something that, that people do discuss. It just hasn't, like, come across my orbit. You know, you're you're living in the depths of this, that you're just kind of coping with what's in front of you, yeah, you know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. We, in New Zealand, there was a lot about kindness. It was part of the whole messaging, but it also just became part of the New Zealand response, it, you know, to try and be kind to people, and it became a, a thing has there been any sense of that in New York? 
I would say so, yes. I mean, it affected a lot of elderly people here and there's like community forum boards and stuff and people would, you know, look out for like the elderly neighbours and go and pick up groceries for them and kind of generally help out, I think. And I don't know, I find New York is generally quite friendly. So yeah, there was definitely a sense of community and you could see it with those 7pm claps and stuff. There's some people who live on my street who would stand on the corner and they'd like wait for the nurses to come past and like individually clap for them and you know they'd all stand in like a socially distanced group and stuff like that and I know that's just a little example but people have been friendly and people Mm. have constantly been checking on each other too and I'm sure not everyone has had that experience there must be you know people who felt quite lonely and isolated during this whole thing because it's been hard but I think the general sense is that people have been there for each other. Well, Amy, I can only hope that as the lockdown eases, you do get to some of those cocktail parties so you can find out what Americans think of us down here because that's obviously terribly important to us. But in the meantime, thank you very much for letting us know what's going on in New York. No problem. I'm sure we will be out of this at some point in the next few years. But um, yes, thanks for having me. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday the 16th of July. I'm Adam Dudding, here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Amy Maas, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. Oh, you can also find Gone Fishing there as well, featuring Amy and Adam at the same place. Or, if you prefer, another podcast called The District. Different bloke hosts that one. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with this podcast, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. And if you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. See you back here next Thursday. Rapidi. Hi, Rida.